We're going to go ahead and get started if we could. Um, my name is Dean Reuter, and I'm director of the Federal Society's Practice Groups. Thank you all for being here today, um, and welcome to our program on missile defense and space security. I'm the moderator today. I'm uh, happy to be here, but know very little about missile defense and space security. So my job is merely to introduce our speakers uh, and keep time on the program. So um, let me give you just a brief uh, idea of what to expect. Uh, Bob Turner, our first speaker, is going to speak for about seven to ten minutes, I think, Bob, uh, kind of giving the, lay, uh, the legal landscape. Uh, then we're going to hear from Dr. Leonard Weiss, uh, who will speak for about 15 to 20 minutes, and then uh, Dr. Robert Falsgraf, also for about 15 to 20 minutes. Um, then we will uh, be happy to have some dialogue among the panelists and then take your questions from the floor. There's going to be a, uh, a wireless mic, and we are digitally recording the event, so if you would wait till you're recognized and wait till the microphone comes around, uh, we'd appreciate it. Uh, Professor Robert F. Turner uh, has both a professional and academic doctorate from the University of Virginia School of Law. He's the co-founder of the Center for National Security Law at the University of Virginia. Uh, he has been at the Naval War College. He's a former chair of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security, uh, a former chair of the Federalist Society's National Security Law Subcommittee. I think that might be current. Isn't that right? Oh. I don't know. They haven't told me otherwise. Okay. This may be the day. Uh, <laughs> I'll let you know in seven to ten minutes, Bob. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, he's he's been at the Pentagon, at the Department of State, and at the White House. So uh, he knows what he's talking about, and we're happy to have him here today. Um, I'm going to introduce the other two. Or are we going to introduce the other two speakers? No, we'll go for it. Okay. Then our, then we'll proceed to uh, uh, Dr. Leonard uh, Weiss, who's a consultant to the Lawrence Livermore. National Laboratory, his full-time job, he's a senior fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation. Uh, he has had tenured professors in applied mathematics and electrical engineering at the University of Maryland and at Brown University. Uh, he's worked for two decades, I believe, for Senator John Glenn, uh, where he was the chief architect of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Act of 1978. And in 2003-2004, he chaired the Federation of American Scientists Advisory Committee on Weapons in Space. Uh, and then last but not least, of course, we'll hear from Dr. Robert Falsgraf, who is president for the Institute for Foreign Policy Analysis. Uh, he's a professor of international security studies at the Fletcher School, Tufts University. Uh, he's held visiting appointments to... Uh, at the College of Europe and has been a professor at the National Defense College in Tokyo. He currently serves on the International Security Advisory Board of the U.S. Department of State. So I think we have assembled a pretty good panel for uh, this event, and now I'll turn it over to Bob. And, Bob, the clock is running, so. Actually, the clock starts when I get up there. I've no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> you bring your hook, a big one. I got it. Good afternoon. It's a great pleasure to be here. My job is to basically set the stage and talk a little bit about the existing international law governing space law, military activities in space, and so forth. And the first principle we need to understand is that international law is by its nature a permissive regime. 
That is to say, with very few exceptions, what is not prohibited is is permitted. Uh, Perhaps the classic statement of this came in 1927 when the Permanent Court of International Justice, in the case of the SS Lotus, declared, and I quote, International law governs relations between independent states. The rules of law binding upon states therefore emanate from their own free will as expressed in conventions or by usage generally accepted as expressing principles of law and established in order to regulate the relations between these coexisting independent communities or with a view to the achievement of common aims. Restrictions upon the independence of states cannot therefore be presumed. Now, there are a number of treaties that have relevance to this. Uh, as everybody knows, the ABM Treaty was, uh, the United States withdrew from the ABM Treaty on December 13th of 2001, effective after the expiration of six months. But during its existence, starting in 1972 until mid-2002, the Article 5 of the ABM Treaty prohibited both the United States and the Soviet Union from development, testing, or deployment of space-based ballistic missiles by either one of the parties. Now, there are some fundamental rules of international law that do not say space in them and are not restricted to space, but nevertheless clearly are relevant. Perhaps the most important of these is the United Nations Charter, and perhaps the most important provision of the UN Charter of relevance to our discussion today is Article 2.4 of the Charter, which provides that all members shall refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state or in any other manner inconsistent with the purposes of the United Nations. Now, looking specifically at outer space, there are a number of outer space treaties or treaties dealing with outer space. The 1963 uh, Nuclear Weapons Test Ban Treaty uh, did not deal just with outer space, but it did prohibit the uh, testing, uh, deployment, uh, or uh, uh, of, of any nuclear weapon in outer space. Uh, I don't think anyone, as I understand the discussions, that's not really being discussed by, by anyone these days, so it, it's relevant, but it may not be controlling for what's being talked about. In 1979, uh, the Moon Treaty, the agreement governing the activities of states on the moon and other celestial bodies, uh, was drafted. It was, to put it kindly, a flop. Twelve states have ratified it. It went into force in 1984. Between those states, I think France may be one, but beyond France, none of them have anything to do with space as far as I can tell. None of the of the uh, otherwise major players in space uh, have been parties. There are also treaties regarding the rescue of astronauts, uh, the international liability for damage caused by space objects, and for the registration of objects launched into outer space that may have some minor relevance but certainly aren't going to tell the United States you can't engage in space-based defenses. Obviously, if you do something and your satellite crashes, you may have liability under one of these treaties. The most important treaty for our purposes is the 1967 Space Treaty. This was the treaty on principles governing the activities of states in the exploration and use of outer space. Uh, it's been ratified by 97 states. It's been signed by 27 others. Uh, for the record, when you sign a treaty uh, under Article 18 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, you accept an obligation not to defeat the object or purpose of the treaty. We can talk about that if you would like at the appropriate time. We've always taken the view that means you cannot engage in any irreversible activities, which is to say if you've signed an arms control treaty, you don't have to get rid of missiles 
uh, but you, if it, if it prohibits certain types of testing, you cannot take part, you cannot go ahead with that testing in a way that would violate the treaty and would be uh, irreversible. That is to say, all you could do is say, oh, yes, we tested, but we tore up our notes or we forgot what we learned or something like that. Article 3 of the Outer Space Treaty provides, uh, and I quote, states parties to the treaty shall carry out activities in the exploration and use of outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, in accordance with international law, including the Charter of the United Nations, in the interest of maintaining international peace and security and promoting international cooperation and understanding. Article 4 says states parties to the treaty undertake not to place in orbit around the Earth, any object carrying nuclear weapons or any other kind of weapons of mass destruction, installs such weapons on celestial bodies or stations such weapons in outer space in any other manner. He goes on to say, The moon and other celestial bodies shall be used by all state parties to the treaty exclusively for peaceful purposes. The establishment of military bases, installations, and fortifications, the testing of any type of weapons, and the conduct of military maneuvers on celestial bodies shall be forbidden. Now, this raises the issue of what do we mean when we say peaceful purposes? Does peaceful purposes mean uh, non-military, no weapons, what have you? And, and the answer to this is fairly clear. In the very beginning of discussions in this area, back in 1957, Henry Cabot Lodge suggested that the United States viewed peaceful purposes as meaning uh, non-military purposes, and the Soviets uh, embraced the same view. Within a year, the United States had changed its position, and we said that peaceful purposes includes the right to protect yourself. Uh, it includes measures of self-defense, but it, it, it's, what it means is non-aggressive purposes. You can't use space in any manner that violates the UN Charter, Article 2.4, basically. Uh, although the Soviets for a while carried on a facade of saying no military use of space. In fact, almost everything they were doing had military purposes, and eventually they came around to saying, yes, the American position is right, no aggressive use of space. Uh, and, and both parties since then have carried out all sorts of military programs in outer space, communications, espionage, satellites, uh, 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 and so forth. Now, obviously, if the drafters of the Outer Space Treaty had intended to prohibit all military uses of space or to ban all weapons in space, they would not have needed to include specific prohibitions against placing weapons of mass destruction in orbit around the Earth or basing them on celestial bodies. Uh, so it's very clear. And although I hear some people that, that, you know, don't know the subject and just look a little bit at this history, say, oh, no, we already have a rule, peaceful uses means there can't be any military involvement, that clearly is not the understanding of the treaty by, by any of the parties. Uh, there's also the clear understanding of Article 88 of the 1982 Law of the Sea Convention, which provides, and I quote, the high seas shall be reserved for peaceful purposes. Now, does this mean that no warships can go on the high seas? Does this mean an end to naval warfare? No, no. Peaceful purposes under the Law of the Sea Convention means no aggressive purposes. Now, that obviously is already a aggression is already a violation of the UN Charter and a variety of other things. So, uh, it's important not to misunderstand this concept of peaceful purposes. Uh, and I don't think there is a, a, a lot of disagreement on this. Indeed, uh, the, the Russians, the Chinese, the Canadians, and a number of other countries are now pushing for a new space treaty to prohibit weaponization of space. 
Uh, and that would be unnecessary if they had a, a colorable argument that, oh, this is already uh, illegal, and, and they don't make that claim. Now, uh, during armed conflict, the military benefits tremendously from communication satellite, from obviously surveillance satellites, uh, and a surveillance satellite can be doing things like looking down to see uh, what storms are forming, where the next hurricane Katrina is going to come from, and so forth. And it also can detect troop movements uh, and, and assist in the conduct of campaigns. And uh, uh, consider also the uh, the GPS system. I came up here today. I got in my car in Charlottesville. I typed in the address, and I said, take me there. And I got here two and a half hours later. Uh, our rescue people around the country now have GPS units. Sears has GPS units, so their repairmen know where to go. Uh, GPS was designed primarily as a military system. It was designed to get our airplanes on target, to get our cruise missiles on target. We, we, we first built the the ground launch and sea launch and air launch cruise missiles. They used something called Terracom guidance, which was terrain contour manage uh, uh, or terrain contour uh, mapping. mapping, mapping, and they would just digitally scan the, the surface of the earth below them. And it would tell them where they are by comparing those digits to pre-programmed maps. Works pretty well over territory where you've got a lot of, uh, of, of terrain changes. Doesn't work very well over deserts where winds blow sand and make new mines or over the, over the ocean and so forth. And GPS has become is why we can literally put a cruise missile through a window uh, at a thousand miles away and. Uh, if we are going to pass, just as a policy issue, it seems to me, if we are going to prohibit weaponization of space, we either are going to say, well, you can do anything as long as the entire weapon system is not in space. If it's controlled from the Earth or if there's some element or a launcher on Earth or something, then it's not included. If you say if any component of a weapon system uh, counts, it can't be in space, then there's going to be a quality of life cost to this in terms of having to shut down an awful lot of satellites that have dual use. It can be used to send an ambulance or fire truck to the scene of a disaster or a home uh, uh, and other things. And this is not to say we should or should not uh, do this. It is to say that we need to be careful as we write laws or treaties that will bind us uh, that we understand the ramifications uh, of those programs. And uh, uh, so on that note, let me turn it over to our true belligerents here and let them go after each other. Dr. White. I didn't realize I was supposed to be a belligerent, but uh, if I, uh, <laughs> I will try my best not to be while making my case. Uh, first, let me uh, thank the Federalist Society for the invitation to uh, come before you. Uh, my philosophy, uh, my political philosophy does not always fit the Federalist Societies in many ways, but uh, I'm pleased to be here anyway. Um, the statement I received from the Society defining the topic to be discussed today included the question, would a multilateral approach of demilitarizing space be a better way than developing space-based military capabilities of protecting America's interests? Uh, the statement, and I, here I will say some things which are uh, in keeping with what uh, uh, Bob Turner just said. Uh, the statement doesn't define what is meant by demilitarizing space. 
If it means removing or not launching satellites that are useful in terrestrial military support activities, including tracking the space activities of other countries, then there are relatively few advocates of demilitarizing space. In the sense described, space is already militarized and will continue to be. But there is a distinction to be made between militarization and weaponization. And here, by weaponization, I mean the placement or basing of weapons in space. The distinction is critical and ought to be recognized by international agreement. The Outer Space Treaty bars weapons of mass destruction in space, but perhaps because of infelicitous language, which didn't reflect the intent of the drafters, and I'm not sure about that, but maybe, the Outer Space Treaty does not bar weapons other than weapons of mass destruction, WMD. So to bar weapons other than WMD, another international agreement would be needed. Opponents of such an agreement claim that space weapons are needed to defend U.S. satellites, to prevent the hostile use of space by others, and to allow space to be used as a base for U.S. force projection. These claims, in my view, are dubious. The main arguments I will present to back up my case are contained in a report produced for the Federation of American Scientists that Bob Turner mentioned, an advisory panel that I chaired, and also work published by Richard Garwin, among others. There are eight major threats to U.S. space capabilities, and in each case there are better ways than space weapons to deal with them. First, there is the threat of denial and deception, that is, the scheduling of an adversary's ground operations when U.S. satellite imagery can't see them, or the use of smoke screens or camouflage. In this case, the U.S. can employ multiple redundant satellite and unmanned aerial vehicle sensing channels uh, and also can improve imagery analysis. Second, there is the threat of ground station attacks. Space-based weapons can't prevent such attacks, but such attacks can be foiled by physical surveillance, by fences, by guards, and backup systems. A third threat is the detonation of high-altitude nuclear explosions that can disable satellites in the line of sight of the explosion or, who will, or satellites that will pass through the cloud of radioactive debris created by the explosion that will destroy the satellite's uh, electronics. Space-based weapons could prevent such an event only if you knew in advance the intent of the launch. Otherwise, one can protect our assets with shielding and hardening of the satellite's electronics. A fourth threat is electronic warfare, for instance, the jamming of satellite signals or the insertion of false commands, which are called spoofing. Space weapons can't help you in ground-based jamming, but ground-based and air-based weapons can, as has been demonstrated in Iraq, where the signals of enemy jammers have been used by us to launch air and ground attacks that have destroyed them. If jamming is being done to a U.S. satellite signal, for example, by using a closely following space mine, destroying the space mine will also destroy the satellite. A fifth threat involves the blinding or dazzling of our satellites by ground-based lasers. Physically destroying a ground-based laser site before damage is done to our asset is nearly impossible, even with space-based directed energy weapons like a space-based laser. It would take seconds to minutes to aim a space-based laser, in addition to the burn time needed for destructive effect. Also, the so-called Rods from God, a kinetic energy weapon dropped from orbit, would take tens of minutes to arrive at a suitable orbital position and another five minutes to fall from a typical altitude of 450 kilometers. 
Moreover, you would need a constellation of space-based lasers for a prompt response and global reach. A better defensive response would be to outfit reconnaissance satellites and other vulnerable systems with physical shields to protect optics and sensitive electronics upon detection of high-intensity laser light. Finally, once you know the location of the offending ground-based laser, you can destroy it with conventional weapons. A sixth threat could be a pellet cloud attack launched via a Scud-type missile like North Korea's Nodong. Nodongs can be hardened against laser attacks and can fire when space-based lasers are most distant. So space-based lasers could not defeat it. As for the use of space-based kinetic kill vehicles, the chances are low of detecting, tracking, and intercepting a nodong within the time frame before the pellet cloud is released, especially if the launch is done under cloud cover. Outfitting the target satellite with passive barriers called Whipple bumpers could be a cheaper and better alternative than space-based lasers. A seventh threat is the use of microsatellite space mines, and here defense is difficult. One could ostensibly use an armed escort satellite to protect the target by colliding with or otherwise destroying the space mine, but a close-in intercept would create space debris that would destroy the satellite one is trying to protect. In order to avoid that, and assuming you needed at least a minute of warning time that a space mine was on its way, an escort interceptor under reasonable assumptions would have to detect an incoming microsatellite and determine its hostile intent at a distance of about 600 kilometers. Determining hostile intent that far away is not feasible. Accordingly, perhaps the best one can do is to fashion an international agreement outlawing space mines. Such an agreement would provide international legitimacy for U.S. military action against the nation that launched the space mine in the first place. The same goes for hit-to-kill ASATs, such as the one demonstrated by China in a test on January 11th of this year. A space-based defense will have the same problem as with the space mine or pellet cloud ASAT, namely the difficulty of determining intent when a launch occurs. Thus, looking at the collection of threats to U.S. satellites, it is apparent that space weapons are not the best way of defending against them. Space weapons are expensive, they have long development cycles, and they are themselves vulnerable to attack. Instead, the U.S. should develop redundant terrestrial backup systems, reduce its dependence on satellites while ensuring the capabilities provided by those satellites in a localized theater of conflict. The use of unmanned aerial vehicles and ground stations could provide GPS, remote sensing, and communications in a theater of operations, eliminating most of the benefit to theater adversaries' intent on attacking U.S. satellites. Some advocates of space weapons see their use with other technologies as providing U.S. control of space, that is, ensuring U.S. freedom of action in space and denying an adversary the same freedom. Such denial is sometimes called offensive counterspace. It includes most of the techniques I discussed for attacking U.S. satellites, including the use of ASATs. Our fledgling ballistic missile defense interceptors could be used as ASAT weapons. In fact, they would work better as ASATs than as defenders against ballistic missiles because satellites don't have decoys that can misdirect the interceptor. But threatening or destroying another country's space assets is a double-edged sword. Escalation of such attacks could result in large quantities of hazardous space debris that could render impossible the operation of satellites in many orbits for many years. It is the U.S. that would suffer the most under such circumstances. 
The deployment of ASATs is more likely to reduce than enhance U.S. national security because we are the country that has the most satellites in orbit and, depend on, and we depend on them more than any other country for satellites. Does this mean the U.S. has to sit back and be vulnerable to the space systems of competitors? The answer is no. U.S. counterspace strategy should focus on non-destructive means of negating or denying an adversary's space capabilities. This can be done via jamming of satellite data links or denial of GPS signals in a theater of conflict. In addition, the U.S. has a significant number of non-satellite destructive techniques for reducing risks, including space-based intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance systems, denial and deception attacks on enemy ground stations, jamming, spoofing, dazzling of satellites, etc. Space weapons are unneeded for this purpose. Advocates of space weapons also claim that such weapons are needed for force projection, that, that putting weapons in space poised to strike anywhere on the globe is a desirable goal if the U.S. is to maintain its position as the world's leading military power. In particular, they claim that space weapons are needed to address time-critical targets, like mobile missiles or targets that are hardened or remote. In both cases, one could reach and destroy such targets with ballistic missiles or cruise missiles armed with conventional warheads and do it more cheaply than with space weapons. In the case of a space-based laser operating, say, at an altitude of 3,000 kilometers with a target protected by three centimeters of cork, the laser would have to burn for 20 minutes before the target felt any heat. That would mean the consumption of about 11 tons of fuel. Putting that kind of weight into orbit would cost $240 million for each target, using the standard launch cost of $22,000 per, uh, per kilogram. To deal with a cluster of ICBMs, you would need a constellation of such lasers, which would require as much as 10,000 tons of material put into orbit. This would mean $220 billion in launch costs alone. In general, space-based lasers are susceptible to being overwhelmed by large numbers of missiles and are vulnerable to low-cost attack by pellet clouds in low-Earth orbit and space mines. By comparison, a single Tomahawk missile costs $600,000, could attack heavily armored and non-flammable targets, would not be affected by clouds as a space-based laser would, and would be expended only when needed. The same type of comparison shows that the use of long rod penetrators, the so-called rods of God that I mentioned before, is also not a cost-effective way of projecting force. These 100-kilogram rods would be literally dropped from orbit and would hit a target with tremendous force, but each such rod would require about three tons of fuel to place it in a 450-kilometer low-Earth orbit, and you would need a distributed constellation of about 40 rods to minimize the time from attack decision to target strike. The total launch costs alone in that case would be $8 billion. Contrast that with the cost of using surplus ICBMs or cruise missiles at $600,000 a unit or precision-guided bombs at $15,000 a bomb. In short, global force projection is possible without the development and use of space-based weapons. Now I will address what I think is Bob Falsgraf's favorite topic, the use of space-based kinetic kill interceptors for missile defense, that is, brilliant pebbles. The idea here is to deploy a 1,000 interceptors in a low-Earth orbit to intercept an ICBM before it leaves boost phase. To do that, the interceptors have to be powered by powerful rocket engines to reach the missile in time. 
The American Physical Society did a study of boost phase missile defense using such interceptors and estimated the weight of the interceptors as being between 600 and 1,000 kilograms. Again, using the typical launch cost of $22,000 a kilogram, we see that the price tag of this space-based weapon system will be above $20 billion. Now, Bob uh, has a, an, or, an organization which uh, has done a study of this. I, I read the study, uh, and, that, and the organization in that, their study says it would cost $16 billion for building the constellation and operating it uh, against an attack of about 200 RVs for about 20 years. But it's unclear from the study anyway whether this included launch costs, and I'd be interested in knowing, in fact, whether that was the case. A brilliant pebbles type of system carries with it a political problem, however, because only space-based interceptors have the possibility of destroying Russian and Chinese missiles in boost phase regardless of the launch site. U.S. claims that our main interest is in protection against a rudimentary missile force of a rogue state will, from the Russian and Chinese viewpoint, sound hollow as indeed it does even to Americans who have paid attention to the rhetoric of some of those advocating U.S. space control and space hegemony. The likely outcome of deployment of such a system would be an expanded production of Russian and Chinese missiles and countermeasures, the placing in space of their own weapon systems, and a worsening of relations that could result in another Cold War. The Chinese ASAT test of January 11th could be interpreted as a shot across our bow, warning us that China is not without its own ability to cause mischief in space. What would the U.S. do if the Russians or Chinese decided to prevent the deployment of a space-based weapon system by using space mines or other ASAT technologies? I don't know, but if it resulted in a war in space, the U.S. would suffer disproportionately, as I pointed out earlier, and it could raise the risk of war on Earth. This all seems unnecessary, especially since a ground-based or sea-based missile defense, if it works, would suffice against North Korea and Iran ICBMs. Moreover, um, the, uh, there's no reason for the U.S. to believe that, uh, that deterrence doesn't work against those countries, especially since it is evident that survival is their first priority. They don't want to become targets of regime change. If they want to survive, they won't attack us with a weapon like an ICBM that has an easily discernible return address. For that reason, a North Korean or Iranian attack on the U.S. is more likely via the smuggling of WMD through uninspected cargo that could be hard to trace than via an ICBM. And even if they decided to attack us with missiles, the missiles would likely be short-range and ship-launched, against which neither a space-based or a ground-based missile defense would work. Um, I have basically run out of time, I think, but I will mention one thing that ought to be done. Okay. Um, I don't want to say that <clears throat> that uh, space arms control agreements or treaties are easy to accomplish. In fact, uh, the opposite is really the case. We've had great difficulty following the establishment of, the, of some of the treaties that Bob Turner mentioned, uh, getting new space-based uh, legislation uh, through. But... Uh, uh, and part of the problem is because there is a U.N. Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space that runs on the basis of uh, rules of procedure that, uh, that are consensus-based, like the Conference on Disarmament, which doesn't work very well because what, any one state can block the uh, ability to fashion an agreement. 
But such difficulties need not be fatal to the adoption of space arms control agreements among coalitions of the willing, if you will, meaning the spacefaring nations. Support is growing for a code of conduct for responsible spacefaring nations that could take the form of political compacts or executive agreements. Such agreements involve the setting of rules of the road to clarify the boundaries between friendly space intercourse and unfriendly or hostile intent. Such a code of conduct focuses on activities and avoids having to define what constitutes a space weapon. For example, responsible nations uh, should agree on a rule that says activities that deliberately produce long-lived space debris are not to be engaged in, such as the Chinese ASAT test. Verification of noncompliance with such a rule is easy to spot since you can't hide the production of long-lived debris in space. Since the generation of such debris affects all users of space, agreements to prevent it are analogous to agreements on cooperative threat reduction, an arms control measure that even the Bush administration supports. As more and more nations become spacefaring, it will be possible for more and more nations to have the ability of space denial for everyone via the generation of long-lived debris. U.S. insistence on freedom of action for itself and itself alone in space is a challenge to other countries that could risk the despoliation of space and its usefulness to our economy and our military. Victory in any large-scale war involving the destruction of space assets cannot be other than Pyrrhic. Enhancing U.S. national security for the long term should be the goal of any good space policy. In my view, that goal is best served at this time by engaging in diplomatic efforts to prevent space weaponization. Thank you very much. Uh, I also would um, like to express thanks to the Federalist uh, Society for arranging this program. Uh, and um, to say that I am delighted to be here, especially because I am in agreement with so much of the ideas that are developed here. I have uh, been asked to speak about space and uh, missile defense, and uh, I will first talk about space in the broader context of national security, and then, of course, I will talk about missile defense, and, of course, I will not surprise uh, Len by not talking about uh, brilliant pebbles. Uh, which I will talk uh, a good deal about. And I'll try to answer that question for him as well. For the past uh, half century, beginning with the Eisenhower administration, successive U.S. presidents have emphasized the crucial importance of space to national security, as well as its importance to our economic well-being. We have seen um, space and, indeed, um, access to space and many have said control of space, as a vital national interest. Uh, I quote simply from the latest um, national space policy, uh, which came out at the end of August of this last year. In this new century, those who effectively utilize space will enjoy added prosperity and security and will hold a substantial advantage over those who do not. Freedom of action in space is as important to the United States as air power and sea power, end of quote. We can only um, remind ourselves here that space provides the indispensable arena today for such military activities as intelligence collection to provide what the military call situational awareness, 
to provide secure communications uh, as well as strategic and tactical warning. Much of our surveillance, communications, and intelligence is performed by satellites and by unmanned aircraft, predators, for example, dependent upon satellites. Targets identified from space can be hit either with terrorist or commando strikes uh, or with missiles that are more widely available than ever uh, to larger and larger numbers of entities around the world. Long-range or short-range missiles can be equipped with nuclear, biological, chemical, or indeed conventional warheads. There has been, um, indeed, uh, in the presentation that we've just heard, some discussion about uh, the weaponization of space. And here I want to say that there is understandable concern, which I share, uh, about the militarization and weaponization of space. However, space is already militarized and weaponized. Indeed, since the first German V-2 rockets ascended to the outer edges of space in 1944 en route to targets in Europe, uh, in, in, in this case uh, targets in England, space has been used for military purposes. When we discuss the weaponization of space, we usually think, as Bob Turner pointed out to us, uh, about the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, which banned the stationing of weapons of mass destruction in space or on celestial bodies such as the moon. Yet, despite this treaty, the distinction between militarization and weaponization of space is blurred and, I would argue, increasingly blurred. This the Chinese vividly demonstrated uh, in their January 11, 2007 ASAT test. China launched a ballistic missile into space designed to detonate a warhead in close proximity <clears throat> to an aging Chinese satellite. The test, of course, was successful. A weapon launched from Earth against a target in space, such as a satellite, thus contributes to the weaponization of space. So the weaponization of space, and here I would disagree with the definition that was just offered, need not take place in space, but instead from Earth, uh, as the Chinese demonstrated in January. Therefore, designing an arms control agreement that would ban this type of ASAT becomes perhaps, and maybe I'm exaggerating to make this point, a fool's errand. Uh, any weapon that can be fired into space becomes a potential space weapon. Furthermore, a ballistic missile could be launched with a nuclear warhead designed to detonate from 40 to 400 kilometers altitude above the Earth with EMP effects, electromagnetic pulse effects, designed to disable satellites and destroy electronic systems here on Earth, as pointed out in the EMP Commission report uh, in 2004. One set of threats that we face emanates from the proliferation of missiles, these include missiles having intercontinental range launched from distant locations or short-range missiles that could, could be deployed aboard submarines or surface ships near our coasts. What this adds up to is uncertainty about the rate at which missile threats are increasing, as well as uncertainty in predicting where and when missiles might be launched and what their targets might be. If this strategic analysis, as I have presented it, is correct, 
It argues for the development and deployment of missile defenses that are ever-present and capable of intercepting missiles launched from essentially anywhere at targets anywhere else, whether the launch point is several hundred miles away or several thousand miles away. In other words, the future missile defense that will be needed must be global in nature. And here is where only space-based defenses inherently have a global, ever-present capability that can be quickly moved where it is needed during or in advance of a crisis. Pre-positioning missile defense assets in space, including interceptors, could provide not only a global capability to defend against ballistic missiles, drastically reducing the time needed to respond to a missile attack, but also a space-based missile defense could furnish the most effective basis for defense in the event of a surprise missile launch, such as a missile designed to launch an EMP attack or to destroy a satellite. These are the goals toward which we ought to be building missile defense. Such goals. I would argue that it has been the politics of missile defense uh, over a long period of time more than the technical obstacles that have limited or reversed or eliminated some of the most promising missile defenses that would help us address such threats. Among its advantages, a space-based missile defense could be in and of itself a layered defense, or certainly a key part of a multi-tiered defense, because it can be built with the capability to intercept attacking missiles in all phases of their flight from boost phase through mid-course and into the high endoatmospheric portion of the terminal phase. Such a defense could give us multiple shots at a missile and its warheads from boost to terminal phase. Space-based missile defense would enable us to hit a ballistic missile in its boost phase when the warhead has not yet separated from the missile and is most vulnerable but also designed to provide the opportunity for interception in subsequent phases of the, of the trajectory as well. Interceptors could be placed in low Earth orbit uh, where they would remain until a hostile missile launch was detected. The interceptor would accelerate out of orbit toward the missile, uh, which could be destroyed by direct impact. This concept that I'm outlining here is not new because we can look back to the early 1990s, certainly at least 15 years ago, in which the United States had developed technology for lightweight propulsion units, sensors, computers, and other components of an advanced interceptor. This was the brilliant Pebbles technology, which I uh, said I would talk very briefly about, of the early 1990s. The brilliant Pebbles design employed a global early warning and tracking system in support of at least 1,000 small space-based interceptors, each capable of autonomous interception uh, of enemy missiles. The Pebbles operated autonomously because each carried the equivalent of a Cray-1 computer on board and could do its own calculations uh, for a trajectory and targeting analysis. Because of the numbers of brilliant Pebbles and their deployment in space, they would have had multiple opportunities for interception, thus increasing their potential for success either in boost phase, mid-course, or even high in the Earth's atmosphere during re-entry or the terminal phase. In contrast, the deployment of ground-based interceptors in the limited numbers presently planned in the ongoing missile defense programs may not provide more than one intercept opportunity. They will need to be placed within a more robust layered defense missile 
defense architecture if we are to move and to keep ahead of the emerging missile threat. Technology advances over the last decade or so provide the basis for such an architecture for less mass, lower cost, and higher performance in space-based kinetic energy missile defense, provided necessary investments are made in this type of technology for the 21st century. And indeed, in my view, this should be a high, uh, a high priority on the missile defense agenda as we move ahead. So what I would like to say here is that, furthermore, uh, as we think about space and as we think about missile defense, that as we think about space as providing the basis for a global defense, that defense should also be open to other countries sharing an interest in missile defense and willing to contribute. And that includes, as far as uh, this idea that I'm presenting is concerned, it includes Russia, it includes uh, any other country that is willing to take part in this, in this endeavor. A global missile defense should be based on the assumption that space, like the high seas, is an arena for common security. The United States should reaffirm the recognition contained in the Outer Space Treaty that was eloquently described earlier in this program, that there is a common interest uh, in the use of outer space for peaceful purposes and that missile defense represents one of those peaceful purposes. Now, as I conclude, and I wanted to make a comment or two in this concluding portion of my remarks uh, about um, some of the lessons that may be drawn from the past. And since uh, we're dealing in, in a, with an audience here uh, that contains a predominance of, uh, of legal specialists, a key lesson that I wanted to derive from this is from the ABM Treaty era. And that is that in the absence of a U.S. missile defense deployment, that was prohibited by the treaty, as was outlined earlier, other states were nevertheless developing missile programs without having to take into account the possibility of a robust U.S. missile defense. This, in my view, is one of the limitations of a multilateralist approach or uh, a, a treaty-based approach to security that does not, uh, that, that, that uh, I've outlined here. In this sense, paradoxically, the ABM Treaty may have had the reverse of the effect intended by its proponents. With little or no need to penetrate a non-existent U.S. missile defense, missiles offer a relatively cheap option for states seeking an asymmetrical advantage over the United States. So the 30-year experience of the ABM Treaty does not lend a great deal of credence to replacing the ABM Treaty with new international legal prohibitions against space-based missile defense. To judge from past experience, such efforts are more likely to place onerous restrictions on the United States, as happened in the ABM Treaty, than to provide universally accepted norms to govern the peaceful uses of space. In short, assured access to space uh, as well as, uh, if I may even say so, space control exercised by the United States with allies who share our security interests is a key to future disincentives to states and terrorist organizations seeking access to such weapons. Therefore, space control, including space-based space missile defense, is crucial to U.S. national security in the 21st century. And in my final two minutes, I have one more thought that I wanted to, uh, uh, to uh, lay before you here. 
and that is that we are entering a period in which additional countries are likely to acquire nuclear forces as well as their own space capabilities. A larger and larger number of countries uh, are now engaged in space activities and space programs. We spend a great deal of time today uh, fretting and thinking and worrying about North Korea and Iran. If we cannot halt their respective nuclear programs, as appears increasingly to be the case, we will need to be able to counter them, to deter them from using such weapons, or to defend ourselves if they are tempted to use them. Space not only affords the arena in which a missile defense could be deployed, it also provides the arena for reconnaissance, surveillance, communications, and other essential capabilities, as I have noted. Space will also be increasingly important as we update security assurances and guarantees to countries that may feel threatened by North Korea. Uh, read, for example, Japan, or by Iran, Israel, and NATO Europe. In other words, space-based missile defense offers a key component of a counterproliferation strategy. Therefore, the importance of space can only grow as we build new architectures to meet 21st century security challenges. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Weiss, do you want to take a minute or two to respond to anything that uh, Dr. Falsgraf mentioned? Okay. Um, I believe the $15 billion in 1992 dollars, uh, Lynn, uh, it did include launch costs, but I'll have to check that out for you. But they, those are 1992 dollars, the $15 billion you quoted. I just wanted to if okay, I might, uh, uh, answer that question. Well, well thank you for that. I, I'm not sure how that, that squares with the notion of a $22,000 per kilogram launch cost for 1,000 interceptors weighing about 1,000 kilograms. Uh, those, those were not my figures, though, that you, that you quoted. The, the $22,000, I don't think. Oh, I, well, that's what the, but I mean, those are I think the figures from the study that you quoted, and I don't know if those figures are okay. are accurate. So, I, I mean, I don't. You're, you're mixing oranges and apples here. Uh, well, I, I don't think so. I mean, there has to be a cost of there has to be a launch cost. The question is, what what is the launch cost per kilogram that was used by the study that your organization did? Yes, and I I, I don't I have to calculate that cost okay. uh, for you. But the, the the number you're using is is from another study, which uh, I I would not want to uh, agree necessarily with. All right. Well, I, until, I, 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 until I look at it. Okay. I, I thought that was a standard number, but uh, I could be wrong about that. I'm not going to. Uh, uh, I believe the, the uh, Satellite Industry Association, I believe, is the one that has come up with a number like that, But uh, which reminds me, uh, one of the questions I'd like to ask is, uh, if in fact a, uh, a space-based defense uh, or the use of ASATs is something that we really ought to keep developing and testing and so forth, uh, why is the Satellite Industry Association uh, opposed to the further development of uh, anti-satellite uh, capabilities? I don't understand why you're asking me that question because uh, I wasn't uh, talking – I was not advocating that the United States build additional anti-satellite capabilities – I, I mean, I, I don't understand the. But you don't. Order. But you think it's wrong for the United States to sign a treaty to to ban it? What I no no I, no you misunderstand oh, I'm what sorry. I'm saying. Let me let me uh, explain more fully what I'm what I'm trying to say. What I'm what I was suggesting in my in my remarks uh, is the inherent difficulty 
of designing uh, an ASAT treaty that is clearly verifiable uh, because uh, we're talking about a a set of capabilities uh, that uh, can be launched. An ASAT could be based in space or it could be based on Earth. Uh, And uh, I think in your own remarks, uh, you indicated uh, some of the problems here. You, 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 in, in fact, as I recall, talk about weaponizing space from space, and what I'm talking about here is, is the blurring of the distinction between weaponizing space in space and weaponizing space from Earth and suggesting that an ASAT capability could be based either here or in, or in space. Uh, and the problems of, of designing an, an arms control treaty uh, in this area seem to me to be mind-boggling. Uh, in fact, it would uh, probably consume more lawyers uh, and strategic analysts than the Federalist Society has. Uh, okay, let, let me uh, let me clarify what what uh, we've been talking about here. I agree that there is a difference between basing a weapon in space, in orbit, and having a ground-based weapon which uses space as a uh, as an area for transit, uh, which is what a ground-based ASAT does. And the point I was making was that putting weapons in space is a bad idea because anything you want to do using weapons in space can be done with weapons that are either ground-based or sea-based or air-based. And secondly, that because the defense against ASATs is so difficult, unless you know the intent of a country when they launch a missile, that is, it is intended to be an ASAT, by the time you have a space-based defense able to deal with that, you will be past boost phase and you will be therefore in mid-course phase uh, for the uh, the ASAT. And you can take a chance in trying to destroy it. Perhaps you have a ground-based system that will do it. But the problem with uh, – this is a general problem with with mid-course missile defense – is that if you destroy the ASAT – uh, it, when it is already in space, you will end up creating space debris which will, uh, which will threaten satellites which are in various orbital planes. And that, uh, if you, if that ends up being a space war, that's a problem in itself. The Chinese created a significant problem, by the way, with their January 11th ASAT test just by destroying their own satellite. They created a lot of debris, which is now going to be a threat to a number of, of satellites which are in low Earth orbit. If you had a war in space, you would end up creating such a difficult problem that trying to use a lot of the reconnaissance satellites and and the communication satellites that are in low Earth orbit, which are basically military satellites, you will end up uh, making those satellites basically inoperable, and the the result is a a diminution of U.S. national security. That's why I think since the defense uh, against ASATs is so difficult to do, you're better off trying to uh, uh, have an international agreement, and it doesn't have to be an arms control agreement with a large number of players and where you have all kinds of fancy, you know, lawyers who who are trying to draft language. You can have this rules, uh, uh, rules of the road type agreement, which people are already trying to fashion and which a number of countries are interested in doing. Uh, And you can end up, therefore, barring at least certain activities which are threats to everybody's uh, uh, security as a result of making space an area which will not be able, which you will not be able to use. So um, I don't think um, one has to uh, 
try to uh, essentially arrange a treaty that would be like general and complete disarmament. You just need a you need an agreement which essentially will remove from consideration certain kinds of behavior which are a threat to U.S. national security, but are a threat to other countries' national security as well. What do you say to that, Doctor? To the extent that we can uh, reach agreements with countries that share the interests that we have in, in the space issues that we're discussing, of course we should reach uh, agreements with them. The problem, however, is that the countries most likely to violate these agreements uh, or, or not to uh, join into those, uh, into, into those agreements are countries uh, whose intent to the, against the United States is hostile. Uh, and that there are there are other countries, in the in this case China, who may speak um, uh, very eloquently about the need for uh, for the uh, the uh, deweaponization or foregoing the weaponization weaponization of space, while at the same time doing what they need to do, in their view, to provide uh, a capability that does the kinds of things that we saw on January 11. So. I, I think that in international agreements, in this case, can codify normative standards that are shared by large numbers of countries, uh, but they do not in themselves provide an alternative for capabilities to enforce those standards. Force those standards is our conventional military capability. Uh, my, my bottom line, of course, is that there isn't anything that space-based defenses can do that you cannot also do with ground-based or sea-based defenses, and that therefore you're putting your you're putting U.S. Re, uh, satellites in jeopardy by uh, essentially encouraging other countries, like the Russians, the Chinese, and perhaps others, as time goes on, to put their own weapons in space. In which case, we will be the ones who will end up suffering more if, they ends up, if there ends up being a war in space. The best way to protect U.S. national security in terms of space is to keep other countries from putting weapons in space if we can avoid it. And the only way you're really going to be able to avoid it is through some kind of international agreement. And if we insist upon putting our own weapons in space, you can be sure that others will follow. And I think that that di uh, diminishes U.S. security. Space-based missile defense is, is not the weaponization of space. Um, Bob, do you want to comment on that? I'm learning. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we take some questions? Well, we ought to have some questions. Uh, I'm Baron Soka from Latham Watkins. Uh, two questions. One, just to clarify things, it sounds like you two are disagreeing on four issues, uh, or agreeing on one and disagreeing on three. Uh, the first would be the military uses of space for reconnaissance, surveillance, and communications. The second would be anti-satellite weapons. The third would be um, actually putting weapons in space. And the fourth would be missile defense. So I wonder if, if that actually reflects your understanding of the issue and uh, whether you think those categories really are meaningful. And it, it obviously it sounded like some of those things uh, overlap such that, uh, for example, missile defense weapons might be used as anti-ASAT weapons as well, or defensive weapons. So I, I wonder if that's a useful uh, way to look at this. And then the second question is, on the subject of launch costs, it sounds like a lot of what you're describing really comes down to economics. And as everyone in the space business knows, what drives the economics of space, all more than anything, is launch costs. 
And uh, so assuming for the moment that the $22,000 uh, per kilogram or $10,000 per pound number is accurate, as I think it is, um, that number may change. And it, it, that's exactly what the military wants to do by developing operationally responsive space to be able to launch not only quickly but also cheaply and to use reusable launch vehicles. So I wonder how you both think uh, that kind of change would shift the terms of this debate, such that if, uh, for example, SpaceX were to succeed in building a launch vehicle that could launch for a third or a quarter of the price of current launches, uh, what would that do to your positions, and, and how do you think that would change the military uses of space? Do you want to go? You want me to no, go? No, why don't you go first, and then I'll, Okay. I'll uh, first, I don't think there is a disagreement uh, between Bob Falsgraf and I on the military uses uh, for things like reconnaissance and tracking and so forth. I think uh, I, I certainly would not argue against that. I think it has been uh, – that has certainly increased U.S. national security, and I think that it certainly ought to continue. So I have no, no problem with that at all. Um, <clears throat> In fact, uh, m my point is that by putting weapons in space, you end up putting those assets at risk, uh, and uh, and that's something I don't think we ought to we ought to do. And the and that's for the same reason I don't like ASATs, uh, for the same reason. Uh, and uh, as far as um, uh, the business about uh, missile defense, uh, yes, they can. I, I think, as I said uh, in my in my main remarks that the, uh, the current uh, design of the, of the uh, ground-based missile defense capability uh, will work better as ASATs than it does as, frankly, as, uh, as missile defense interceptors because the, um, the aggressor, uh, the, the, the missile launcher, uh, has an advantage over the defense, always has an advantage over the defense. If you build a missile defense of the sort we are building now, that missile defense can be overcome by simply building more missiles to overwhelm the, uh, the ability to, to deal with them. You can also uh, uh, have uh, decoys and countermeasures. You can build missiles that look like decoys. Uh, you can put, uh, you know, balloons around the missile warheads and around the, uh, the missile itself, making it more difficult for the, uh, for the missile defense system to determine what is a decoy and what isn't, and therefore you need to have a much larger capability of shooting interceptors at it. So the, uh, the offense always has an advantage. And the argument, of course, then boils down to how much more uh, does the offense have to spend in order to overcome a missile defense? And at least the studies that I'm familiar with always show that it costs less to build a, uh, a better offense that will overwhelm a missile defense than it does to increase the cost of your missile defense to try to overcome whatever countermeasures the offense has, has put into play. Uh, the question about uh, launch costs is, uh, is interesting. You asked what is the, uh, what, how would your position change if launch costs were to go down? Obviously, if launch costs went down significantly, I would have to look at that question, you know, de novo and see, you know, what the, you know, what the situation looks like in terms of costs. My point, however, at the moment is that you have a system which is technologically difficult uh, to actually uh, design and build, well, you can design one, but building it and making it work is another matter. So there are serious technological difficulties with a space-based weapon system to begin with. 
if you overcome the technological difficulties and it and it works, then you've got to look at the launch at the not only the launch cost but the cost of of, this, of building and 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 operating the system. And I, I'm perfectly willing to sit here and say that I have no ideological opposition to the notion of space-based defense. I'm only saying that when I look at all at the alternatives that I have available for it and at the costs, space-based defense loses on both counts. Go ahead. Uh, yes, uh, a number of uh, a number of comments. Uh, I am not here to advocate the deployment of weapons in space. Uh, I, I, I trust you understand that. I simply do not regard a space-based missile defense as the deployment of a weapon in space. What I'm suggesting, however, is that access to space with weaponry from, from here on Earth uh, is uh, with us today and is likely to grow in the future, that in that sense space has been weaponized and will continue to be weaponized. Whether or not weapons are actually stationed in space uh, for military purposes that uh, do not exist now or that do exist now, we do not know uh, whether that will come about or not. So weapons in space, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not strongly advocating, I'm not supporting. ASATs, of course, we would like to keep uh, all of the satellites, since we have the largest number of satellites for military and for civilian uses, the aggregate for the U.S. is very, is, is very great. It's the greatest of all countries. Therefore, I uh, do not want to see those satellites put at risk. But they have already been put at risk by what the Chinese have done. Uh, and we have over the years, in the case of the U.S., conducted a number of studies and had a number of programs designed to look into ASAT issues. But we did develop during the Cold War rules of engagement or rules of the road uh, for, uh, uh, for uh, satellites uh, and for maintaining uh, the security of satellites. Neither the Soviet Union nor the United States was prepared to destroy each other's eyes, uh, uh, its, its uh, intelligence, its reconnaissance, uh, its surveillance capabilities based on satellites. Now, uh, the next point that I would, in this case, I would disagree uh, with, um, with my, my colleague here uh, on the issue of the relative cost ratio between, uh, between uh, building more missiles and providing more defense. Uh, the numbers that I gave you and that we talked about, $15 billion dollars, whether you agree with that, whether it's $30 billion or whether it's 60 you can make up a number of numbers that you want, uh, and you can say that um, the cost uh, of missile defense, uh, if it protects a civilian population uh, from uh, a devastating attack, the cost of this is, is incalculable, just as we don't know what the cost of 9-11 uh, was uh, in terms of the the, the lives that were lost and the earning power that was, uh, that was destroyed uh, by what happened in the Twin Towers on September 11. But having said all that, it is also the case uh, that the, um, uh, the, the relative cost of building a defense compared to, uh, to building additional offensive missiles uh, is, uh, is coming down in favor of the defense. Uh, and that the United States given the very large capabilities that it has and resources, uh, can, can afford to build a, a missile defense that keeps ahead of 
the very limited capabilities that could be deployed by a large number of other entities around the world. And the fact that we have not done this for all of these years has given essentially any country that wants to build missiles and can do so relatively cheaply essentially a free ride. Uh, and and, and that's, that was what the ABM Treaty brought us. And that's why I said it, it seems to me that it was the reverse effect of what was intended. It, was, it, it, it encourages those to develop capabilities to penetrate a missile defense shield that doesn't exist. And I, I'm, we don't have a missile defense shield. So, so the capabilities are, are built that give, a, give the entity building them uh, a free ride, essentially. So, so it seems to me that um, uh, that, that is uh, a, a very major set of considerations uh, and, and that we also were in the process of building missile defense systems, in this case what we have uh, chosen to build uh, since 2001, a system that is very limited in what it can do. And, and it is subject to, uh, uh, to, to failures of various kinds. Uh, there are uncertainties about whether or not it will work. And, and that is essentially the legacy of the technologies that we were able to build in the 1990s rather than capitalizing upon the space-based technologies that I mentioned with regard to Brilliant Pebbles and some of the technologies that would not have been ABM treaty compliant coming out of the, uh, coming out of the Reagan-Bush 41 era. And, and had, we, had we gone along that path instead of the one that we did, uh, we would probably be in a quite different position today, and I would be even able to make a stronger statement than I can about the ratio between offense and defense and the relative advantages of defense. Uh, uh, I'm going to step away from the cost considerations very, very quickly or very briefly. It seems to me that if we could deploy the systems for almost nothing, you, you would still object because of the escalation and the, and the escalation, and then that, that's one of your fears. And, and, and Dr. Falsgrave, you seem to be suggesting that we're already behind, or the escalation is going to proceed without us, uh, and, and and we need to get involved for for those well, reasons. Is that right? You know, thank God for the thank God in this case for the ABM treaty because. Uh, otherwise, we'd be sitting here arguing that the United States uh, built a robust missile defense system in the 1980s and 1990s, and as a result of that, all kinds of countries around the world uh, built uh, larger and larger numbers of missiles to penetrate that. I mean, that's the, the idiocy of this argument. And, and so I say thank God for the ABM Treaty because we did not uh, build uh, – uh, a, a defensive system, and yet the building of offensive missiles or, or ballistic missiles on the part of a large number of countries uh, continued and accelerated because missiles represent a relatively cheap way uh, of, of building a military capability. Well, I will say uh, uh, first uh, that uh, if you're talking about, uh, you know, What's cheap and what isn't? You know, the cheapest way for North Korea or Iran to uh, bombard the United States with a nuclear weapon, if they have had one, would be to uh, send a ship uh, offshore and shoot a short-range missile at us with a nuclear warhead, or to smuggle it in uh, by uh, uninspected cargo, which is not to, that difficult to do, and, and set it off inside a city. 
you have no defense, basically, against either one of them in terms of space-based or ground-based uh, uh, in, in that case. Uh, so, so we are vulnerable, uh, but pretending that building an expensive space-based system, even if, well, or even if it's not expensive, even, even if it costs nothing, will still not protect you from that kind of, of attack. And, uh, and if they want to survive, uh, they're not, they're not going to shoot, you know, a, a missile at us that, uh, you know, has a, a return address on it, which missiles do. So, uh, you know, there is, there, there is a problem there. I mean, there's a, there's a problem of vulnerability there for us, but there is no, we do not have a defense at this point except whatever we have in the way of a deterrent to prevent, to deter them from doing it. And our deterrent is, is in pretty good shape as far as those countries are concerned. Uh, as far as the – we should not pretend, by the way, that um, it is simply a matter of time, uh, short time, I should say, before we can put a space-based missile defense uh, in, in effect. The technical problems that have to be solved in order to do it are still pretty daunting, and it's going to take quite a long time to be able to uh, make this happen. I'm not saying it will never happen. I'm just saying that this is not something that is a short-term issue. And that's one of the reasons why the Bush administration has, in fact, decided to spend its money elsewhere and, and build a ground-based system uh, uh, that has difficulties of its own. And some of the technical problems associated with the ground-based system have still not been overcome. There have been a number of – there have been about 12 tests of the system so far. Six of them have been successful. Six of them have been unsuccessful. None of the tests have, in fact, uh, been tests which in any sense could be called realistic where an attempt has been made to uh, intercept a missile which contains some kind of a decoy. Uh, that is, in fact, the problem for the future uh, in terms of missile defense. It still has not been solved. Add on top of that, trying to do it from space, and by the way, I'm not quite sure I understand Bob Falzgraf's claim that uh, we don't have, uh, we haven't got weapons, uh, that Brilliant Pebbles doesn't involve weapons in space. It does involve weapons in space. The interceptors are in orbit. Uh, they are weapons in space, and, and therefore it is a space-based weapon system. Uh, and the reason that the, the Bush administration basically decided not to pursue it assiduously is because they don't have a lot of confidence in the ultimate, you know, workability of that system. Let's take a couple more questions. It is a space-based uh, system designed to intercept uh, a, a ballistic missile uh, that is clearly a weapon in transit from point of launch to point of impact. Uh, and and that that uh, is is not the equivalent uh, of of, uh, of the ASAT capability that you're talking about. Right here. Um, wait, wait for the mic. Thanks, Dr. Weiss. In your um, initial argument about how we'd be better protected by an international agreement, you referred to making those agreements uh, such an agreement with responsible parties. Um, but now you just conceded um, that the Chinese missile test uh, created a huge amount of debris. Um, the Chinese don't seem to be a, a reasonable party the or responsible party. Um, in response to our planned deployment of a very small uh, interceptor uh, base in Europe, uh, President Putin has threatened to point missiles at uh, Eastern Europe 
and has threatened to pull out of the uh, Conventional Forces in Europe agreement. So who are the responsible parties that we'd be dealing with? I'm saying that it's useful to try to pursue it because you don't really have much other choices. The fact of the matter is that we can't prevent a Chinese ASAT capability. They have it. Uh, we can't. We and if they and if they launch a missile uh, out of the blue some at some time, you have no way of determining whether it's hostile intent or not. So uh, even if you have a pretty good system for boost phase defense, you're still going to have to depend upon some kind of political dialogue with the Chinese in order to avoid the possibility of a bolt from the blue because you have no way of defending against it. Uh, my point about the, whether the Chinese are responsible or not was, yes, the test was, not, was, was irresponsible. I certainly agree with that. Having said that, the fact of the matter is that the Chinese have indicated that they are interested in pursuing a, a treaty for, uh, for peaceful uses in outer space, which the United States has consistently declined to do. We voted against a UN resolution to try to pursue such a treaty. We, it's the first time, in fact, that that treaty with, that the United States has cast a vote against it. The, the vote comes up almost every year. And, uh, you know, nothing has gotten done about it. The United States used to abstain from voting for it for ideological reasons mostly. Uh, this year, this past two years, they voted against it. We voted against it. Now, uh, the Chinese voted for it. So did the Russians. The fact of the matter is that the Russians and the Chinese have offered uh, language with respect to a treaty on peaceful uses of outer space, which the United States has rejected. Uh, I think that the problem here is that they are that January 11th test was a way for the Chinese to say, if you guys insist upon not engaging us in any kind of dialogue towards some kind of an agreement about about weapons in space. We're just going to go ahead and do our thing on ASATs and whatever else, which is going to threaten your satellites. But, but you could read the same evidence in the other direction to say that the, that the Chinese are not serious when they vote for I, I certainly could. And uh, the only way of finding out which way is the right way to read it is to engage them and see whether you can get an agreement. Uh, Dr. Paul's president, do you have a response or can we take one more question? I think you want to take another question. I mean, I can respond to that. Yeah, I'm, I am not a national security expert, and I'm uh, just an, an interested amateur and, and a lawyer. Uh, it seems to me, though, that neither of you mentioned the only time I can think of when missiles were actually used in warfare, that is to say ICBMs, and that would be the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s when both countries fired missiles at each other's capitals. And I would like you to have the opportunity to talk about the sort of third-party uh, aspect of this. Think about the next Mid-Eastern crisis or the next sort of South Central Asian crisis or the next Sea of Japan or Taiwan Strait crisis where the United States is not directly implicated, but you have regional powers, uh, some with perhaps nuclear weapons, some not, uh, but with large conventional weapons who could inflict ten or 15,000 casualties on their adversaries, well, but there's no attack on the United States threatened. It's a regional conflict. Now, wouldn't a space-based defense against missiles earn its keep simply by not having Aegis cruisers sort of sailing all around the world trying to go from Taiwan to, to perhaps the Persian Gulf? 
because they would be deployable much faster, assuming that it's technically feasible. And why wouldn't that be a unique function which would essentially remove one quiver from the arrow of states that are perfectly prepared to kill each other uh, and governments that are perfectly prepared to adopt very high-stakes blackmail? Well, and would I, you respond to that? Yes, of course. Uh, I, uh, I've, I've long thought about this issue, and um, I didn't talk about it in my remarks today. Perhaps I should have, but you've stated it very eloquently that one of the goals that, 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 I, that I see that we should pursue with regard to missile defense uh, is escalation control uh, and uh, the ability that this would give to the United States as an outside but interested party uh, in uh, crisis management in this uh, hypothetical situation that you outline. I also believe, by the way, that the Chinese, just to go back to the question that we were talking about a moment ago, that you can also say the Chinese are signaling to us by the January 11 test their ability to blind and destroy the satellite capabilities that we would need in a future crisis with Taiwan. Now, I believe that space-based missile defense should be designed in a way that allows a, a global presence, as I've indicated, that gives us the ability to control escalation in regional crisis situations, such as uh, in the Gulf or such as in the Taiwan Strait. Uh, and that, that ought to be uh, a, a part of the missile defense architecture. And we ought to be prepared, incidentally, to do that cooperatively with other countries willing to work with us, as I indicated during my remarks. First, let me say there were no ICBMs that were fired in the Iran-Iraq war. Those were shorter-range uh, missiles. Um, uh, se- okay. Secondly, uh, as far as, uh, you know, our having some kind of a global missile defense uh, when there are regional conflicts that don't involve the United States, my reading of that off the top of my head is if the United States all of a sudden decides to get into the game of shooting down other people's missiles when we're not involved in the conflict, what that does is makes, it makes us involved in the conflict, and then we become a target too. But go ahead. Well, um, thank you all for coming, and thanks uh, uh, to our terrific panel. Thank you very much, everybody.